0: Hey there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's Time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to the 300th episode of Time for Coffee, another milestone on our journey to helping all of you to turn your degrees into careers you love. And if you're new to T4C, welcome. I hope you're going to find what you're looking for. And if you can't, hit me up on email at andrea at time, the number 4 coffeeorg and I will make my best effort to find a professional in that career to interview just for you. To mark this milestone, we've decided to showcase guests whose professional mission is to help people, to help all of us to live happier and healthier lives, both physically and mentally. Because my friends, as I learned firsthand over the years, what good is it to find a job you love if your mental health and or your physical health sucks? And so, over the last almost two years, I've made a concerted effort to find and interview only the best experts who are medical doctors or certified coaches in the wellness space. And in today's episode, number 300, you're going to hear from some of my absolute faves, including, in order of appearance, Dr. Mark Hyman, an extraordinary healer in the field of what's known as. Functional Medicine, who practices at the Cleveland Clinic and runs its Functional Medicine Center there, as well as running his own practice called the Ultra Wellness Center in Lenox, Massachusetts. And he's written 12, it may even be 13 books by now, most of them New York Times bestsellers. And for a brief period of time, I was lucky enough to have Dr. Hyman as my doctor, He was helping me to recover from Lyme disease. So once again, I speak from firsthand experience. Next up is Dr. Ellen Vora, a board-certified integrative psychiatrist who graduated from Columbia Medical School and since supplemented her medical degree with additional studies on nutrition. Acupuncture and other practices. Like Dr. Hyman, Dr. Vora also takes a functional medicine approach to mental health, considering the whole person and addressing problems at their root, rather than just reflexively prescribing medication to suppress symptoms. After Dr. Vora, you're going to hear from Dr. Neil Barnard, founder and president of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. And he's an associate professor of medicine at the George Washington School of Medicine. Among many things, Dr. Barnard leads programs advocating for preventative medicine, good nutrition, and higher ethical standards in research. His own research has contributed to the acceptance of plant-based diets in the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. And last but not least, you'll hear from Elise Muselis, an attorney who has since earned certificates in holistic health and eating psychology and works with clients to help them nourish themselves and make peace with food and their bodies. If you want to listen to any or all of these guests in their entirety, check out the show notes for this episode to find links to their original T4C episodes. I sincerely hope that you will really enjoy and benefit from this special wellness mashup, and that it helps you to nurture your very best selves. Now let's start the show. So I'd like to have you start by explaining to the Java Junkie community what functional medicine
1: is. Sure. Well, functional medicine, I sort of often joke, is that it's the opposite of dysfunctional medicine, which is what the rest of we have. Uh, And essentially, it's a way of thinking differently about disease. It's not a specialty or modality. It's a reimagining of our notions of health and disease based on this emerging science that teaches us that everything's connected. So we, we, in functional medicine ask a different set of questions. We want to know why instead of what. You know, we have now 155,000 diagnosis codes to tell you exactly what you have. You have a migraine, but it's a, this kind of migraine or that kind of migraine. You have rheumatoid arthritis or you have irritable bowel or whatever the diagnosis is. Those are just labels we give to sets of symptoms that people share and tell you nothing about why you have those symptoms. So functional medicine is about understanding the why and the root cause and then treating the cause and not the symptoms. It's treating the whole body as a system, not just the individual symptoms with different medications. Rather than using drugs, which are often blocking or interfering or inhibiting something in the body, we use things that help support the body. And different between antibiotics, for example, which kill bugs and probiotics, which help support normal, healthy bugs in your gut. That's just a, one obvious example, but it's it's a, a whole system of thinking about how is a body operating as an integrated system. And you know, when you go to the doctor and you have a migraine and you have eczema and you have irritable bowel and you have sinus issues and you have, maybe you have some autoimmune disease, the do- you see a bunch of different doctors for that, as opposed to saying, how are all these connected? What is the underlying cause? Is it just bad luck that you have 12 different diseases? Does it mean you need 12 different medications or is there something that connects all these things will will be a common thread that you can treat and then everything goes away. That's really the approach. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the the science of creating health as opposed to the science of treating disease. And as part of that belief, you
0: believe that food is medicine and, and should be treated as such. And before we get into that, Can you talk about how the food that Java junkies consume, or at least some of them consume, even as teenagers and young adults, may be making them sick? And what are the symptoms they may be experiencing right now that would be red flags for you as a physician?
1: Yeah, well, I think a lot of people walk around with what I call FLC syndrome. That's when you feel like crap. (laughs) (laughs) And that could be any number of different symptoms from, you know, headaches, to joint pain, to fatigue, to insomnia, to depression, to eczema, to irritable bowel, to asthma, and on and on and on. And even more serious things like autoimmune diseases or neurologic diseases or digestive issues. I mean, it's all connected. And what we are learning now is that food is the most powerful drug and that it is not just calories, that it's information. And that information literally can upgrade or downgrade your biological software with every bite and not over months or years, but literally within minutes or, or, or hours. And that is because, you know, the food has not just protein, fats, carbs, fiber, but it actually has instructions like code that can change your biology to sort of change the expression of your genes, change your hormones, change your immune system, change your microbiome, Literally with every bite. So if you were putting poor quality information in your body, then you are going to get poor quality output, junk in, junk out. And most of the food we're eating is not really food. In the last, you know, 100 years, we've dramatically changed our food system, our food supply. And, you know, 60%, for example, of our calories come from commodity foods subsidized by the government, including wheat, corn, and soy, which are essentially turned into flour, soybean oil. And corn syrup, my fructose corn syrup, which are then turned into a myriad of different size shapes, colors of processed foods, which are are not really health promoting in fact, studies have shown that people who consume those foods get sick, and those who consume the most of those foods get the sickest. This is from a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, so there's no doubt that we're putting in the wrong information. and I think it's important for people to realize that the quality of their food matters more than the quantity. The whole calorie-focused effort to lose weight and to get healthy is just completely misguided and doesn't actually reflect the science anymore.
0: Dr. Hyman, the Java junkie community are mostly 18 to 25 year olds who at least at this stage of their lives are probably still able to eat what they want without really suffering some of the significant health problems that you are seeing in your practice among older people with whether it's diabetes or Crohn's or high blood pressure, things like that. But that doesn't mean that what they eat isn't still affecting their physical and mental health, right?
1: Absolutely. You can look fine on the outside, be really sick on the inside. So, aside from promoting chronic disease later, which people go, oh, whatever, you know, I'm going to be sick or not, but it actually does affect you right now. And often people, well, say to me, Dr. Hammond, I didn't know I was feeling so bad until I was feeling so good. And that is really an important concept because most people just think the way they feel is normal. And it may be just a little brain fog, it may be just a little fatigue, it may be a little sleep issues, it may be, uh, you know, issues around a little headache, this and that, a little post nasal drip, or whatever it is. People don't often connect the dots between what they're feeling. And what they're eating. And the best way to do that is to change your diet for 10 days and see what happens. And, and, and I, I would say whether you're not old, most people have issues, whether it's a little acne or whether it's this or that. People have issues. And I, I you know, of doing this for 30 years, I've rarely seen someone who's really just awesome.
0: I want to ask you, Dr. Vora, about inflammation mm-hmm. and to explain to Java junkies how inflammation in our bodies actually can manifest in our brains. Yeah. So
2: inflammation in our bodies, that can mean a lot of different things. But basically, if if the immune system is kind of chronically activated, the brain is a physical fleshy organ like anywhere else and that inflammation it's not like the brain is completely siphoned off from that now some people would point out there is a bit of a siphoning off the brain has the blood-brain barrier it's in certain ways not exposed to all of the same things that are in the bloodstream that the rest of the body is exposed to but we got that wrong for a long time to think that it's not exposed to immune activation the brain absolutely is and the glial cells and the whole there's a there's a there's a whole immune system happening in the brain as well so chronic inflammation your brain hears that. And it sends a really important message to the brain. It basically says I'm sick and I'm fighting an infection. And so in the olden days, like on the proverbial Savannah, where we evolved, it's the brain is like, oh, we we caught a bug and now we're sick. So let's go retreat to a cave. Let's rest. Let's isolate from the group because we don't want to infect others. Let's not be interested in sex or like going out and like meeting people and hanging out right now. Let's just rest and feel little lousy and feel a little bit like I can't come on this sucks it'll affect appetite it'll affect energy and your brain wants to just rest until you your immune system has had the time to fight off this infection and then you're back in the game. That system worked pretty well when our biggest threat to our immune system was in fact infectious disease. Those days are gone. We've kind of gotten to a place where infectious disease is not our biggest threat. We've, we have an extremely hygienic world. We don't have as much exposure to parasites or microbes and we do have, God forbid, antibiotics if and when something really is serious in that way. But what we are exposed to right now and what the real threat to our immune system is is these inflammatory substances alongside a compromised gut flora. And that's kind of a one-two punch of modern living because it's our gut flora. It's all those different beneficial bacteria in our digestive tract that train our nervous system. And if we can curse, the way I think about it is that's what tells our immune system on a daily basis to calm the fuck down. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. basically, when we've compromised that through taking antibiotics, through birth by C-section, lack of breastfeeding, antibiotic residue in our tap water, sugar in the diet, alcohol in the diet, chronic stress, so on and so forth, then we don't have those beneficial bacteria in our guts, um, a really diverse population of them, telling our, our immune system to calm down. So, our immune system is thinking, ah, I'm freaking out. And then we consume all this food that's super inflammatory. And maybe if we had a really diverse, good gut ecosystem, we could handle a little bit of it. But we're missing the gut microbes and we're eating a lot of inflammatory food. And that combination has us chronically inflamed. So, the brain is constantly thinking, oh, I have another infection and another infection and I'm not beating this infection. But we're never really beating the because we're ingesting it anew every single day.
0: I listened to the podcast interview that you did on mind body health. And I loved something that you said. You said our immune system is terrible at fighting off Doritos. Uh-huh. Yeah.
2: yeah, that's what it is. We, 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 our immune system is designed to fight off microbes. And microbes are sort of not the main issue right now. But instead, the inflammatory agents were introducing our processed foods. And we just did not design. We weren't designed for that. And so that'll be another few millennia from now that our immune system is amazing at fighting off Doritos. And then there'll be a new problem to contend with. But right now, it's just a software issue. We just have a machine built for an entirely different situation.
0: So when you said our immune system is terrible at fighting off Doritos, for Java junkies listening right now, and trust me, I used to enjoy Cool Ranch as much as the next, you know, me too. snacker out there. But what is our body doing? What is our brain doing to give us the message that, hey, please don't feed me any more Doritos?
2: Well, If it is, that message is getting overruled by the drug-like effects of these foods. So I, too, was uh, partial to Cool Ranch. I always thought it was the superior Dorito flavor. Um, But basically, I think the lucky, if you think about in your friend circle, people you know, the ones who are like, my stomach hurts, you know, (laughs) like this gives me migraines, this gives me a headache, and that makes me bloated. We think of them as the sickly ones, but it's possible that their bodies are actually in certain ways better at communicating, hey, this food is poison. Whereas those of us who are just resilient and bouncing around can eat anything and feel fine, sometimes it's actually like that we're not good at listening to our bodies and sometimes it's actually that our bodies are not good at communicating. So some people's bodies say, hey, this food gives me a headache or makes me bloated. But usually what's the stronger signal is that these foods are very, they, they behave like drugs, you know, in food science, these foods are engineered to hit that bliss point of perfect amount of salt and fat and has that perfect crunch right in that palate of your mouth. And basically, we're just really like they know human beings and they're like, this will be something that y'all just like all of us. Everyone listening right now who has ever tasted a Dorito is salivating a little bit right now as we're thinking about this and talking about it. So it's a drug and we get a little bit addicted to it. And I think that usually overrules the signals from our body of this is making me sick.
0: What about the way it manifests in their mental health? And, Mm -hmm. you know, it goes beyond Doritos. It may be other foods out there. In fact, it is other foods out there in which we are inadvertently inflaming our bodies and our brains. How can Java junkies better listen to the signals that their bodies are sending them?
2: Great question. Yeah. So I think that it's the real key. The gold standard here is to do an elimination diet. I like the whole 30 diets. I think that they're just brilliant and how they've crafted the verbiage around it. It's very concise and pithy and it's funny. And they're basically like, because what I encounter when I tell patients to do an elimination diet is, hey, doc, this is hard. And I usually really just empathize because I live this life. And I'm like, you know what? It is hard. It really is hard. It takes discipline. It takes preparation. It takes a little bit of sacrifice, but whole 30s like, no, no, no. Childbirth is hard. This is not hard. <laughs> so I like putting it in that perspective. It is challenging, but it's doable. And I think ways to listen to your body. So most people, like when I talk to patients about gluten, they're like, "No, nah, gluten's not a problem for me." It's like, okay, well, what makes you think that? And usually, people will think, "Well, you know, my digestion is fine, so I don't think I have a problem with gluten." And so, an inflammatory food like gluten that can show up in a lot of different ways. If you have eczema, if you have ADHD, autism, learning disability chronic sinus infections migraines other headaches bloating distension heartburn like gerd hemorrhoids chronic constipation chronic diarrhea any autoimmunity at all psoriasis thyroid condition rheumatoid arthritis and mental illness really if you have depression anxiety insomnia adhd bipolar schizophrenia all of these in my mind point towards gluten. And I don't mean to just be like a hammer that only sees gluten. I swear, I try every day to, to not tell somebody in my practice to go gluten free. I really try. But it's just, it's always just like too obvious. Somebody is chronically constipated, or they have eczema, or they are always bloated, or they have a family member with schizophrenia. These are all to me indications that gluten is playing a role. You mm-hmm. know, I just yep.
0: want to... Interject here because one of the yeah. one of the responses that I've heard from people, and frankly from other medical doctors, is, "But that person doesn't have Crohn's disease, mm-hmm. celiac, yeah, or excuse me, celiac yeah. disease. Yeah, that yeah. person doesn't have celiac. Why do you think that is the wrong marker?"
2: Mm-hmm. yeah, they don't. I, I most of the time they don't, although celiac incidence is actually increasing, which is a little disturbing. but so they don't. But celiac is the tip of the iceberg. It's one of many, many, many manifestations of the body not tolerating gluten. And there are a lot of different components to gluten that your body cannot tolerate, and there are a lot of different ways that your immune system is, is getting activated by it. So celiac is one of many. But I think the the interesting resistance to me is that I have you know encountered so many of my colleagues, so many of my patients, other doctors say, we tested you for celiac. You don't have it. So no need to avoid gluten. And I usually just say, is it worth a month trying going gluten-free and just seeing how you feel? And if your mood gets more stable or you're suddenly pooping every day, then who cares what the blood test shows you? It doesn't matter if you have celiac or not at that point. We've increased your quality of life, we've improved your functioning by going gluten-free. I do still build caveats into that because it's not something I approach lightly to convert someone over to the dark side of the gluten-free lifestyle because it's a big change. And I think that when you pulled back the curtain and showed someone you can live without bloating and without migraines, I think it makes them very sensitive so if they decide this isn't worth my trouble and I want to go back to gluten, sometimes they really do feel a lot worse suddenly. And I kind of made that problem for them by having them go gluten free. So I don't approach it lightly. It's all a balance of how is your suffering? You know, and is it? Does it warrant making these kinds of lifestyle changes?
0: So I also mentioned in the introduction, something that really rocked my world I could not believe it when I heard you say this, and that is that something as seemingly innocuous and delightful as cheese can be addictive. How is that possible?
3: Oh, my God. We used to see this, and we still see it in our research studies. We bring people in, they got diabetes, they want to get better. So we put them on a plant-based diet, and they do great. Their blood sugars fall, they lose weight, their cholesterol's is improved. But so many of them will say, no matter how good it is, got to tell you, I still miss cheese. Specifically cheese, not ice cream, not whole milk, not chicken. Cheese. And I thought, it smells like old socks. Why do people want cheese? So much? But people do get addicted to it. They sure do. And we have found out why. And you're going to tell us. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, cheese is more addictive than butter or whole milk or even ice cream. And the question is why? The smaller part of it is it's very salty. There's more salt in cheese, I was than there is in potato chips, believe it or not. And it's fat. It's about 70% fat. So the salty, fatty combination, people love that. Potato chips, onion rings, French fries, salt and fat equals addiction. But cheese has something that French fries don't have. It actually has mild opiates in it. And when I say opiates, I mean relatives of heroin or morphine. And what they are, they're called casomorphins, C-A-S-O morphins. That means they come from casein, C-A-S-E-I-N. Casein is the dairy protein. Coated in the protein molecule, as the milk was coming out of the cow's udder, the protein has little opiates coated into it. They come out when it's digested, and so the calf would get these opiates, be a little bit calmed, and kind of bond to mother as the calf is suckling. The cheese-eating adult gets them too, but the difference is it's in all milk, it's in all dairy products that have the protein in it, but in cheese, the protein is concentrated and it's sort of dairy crack, if I can put it that way. Whole milk has these opiates too, but cheese has a lot of it. And it's not that strong. The strongest case of morphine has about one-tenth the brain-binding capacity compared to pure pharmacy-grade morphine. So it will not get you arrested, but it's just strong enough for a person to say, I want that.
0: Yeah. And I'm thinking as I read this information oh, that really explains why when I think I'm being good and I'm taking out my goat cheese and my Amy's crackers and I'm having a couple of crackers, the next thing I know, half the thing of goat cheese is gone. Why? I couldn't stop.
3: Yeah. Well, there's a word for that. That's sort of a tongue in cheek word that addiction researchers use. They call it moorishness, which is I had one cookie and now I need more. And now I need more. And I've I, had, I already it. had eight, but I need another one. Basically, they call it Moorish. And it's the same with cheese, is that you have a little bite with a cracker. And that was kind of good. And pretty soon, the whole thing is there. The problem is, is that cheese, it's 70% fat, more salt than potato chips, as much or more cholesterol as steak. If it were any worse, it would be Vaseline, I got to tell you. And kids eat it all the time because they're told, well, it's got protein in it somewhere. If you can cut your way through the saturated fat, it's the number one source of bad fat in the diet. And so it leads to heart disease saturated fat is linked to Alzheimer's. Talk about the brain. Researchers in Chicago at the Chicago Health and Aging Project have looked into what causes Alzheimer's. And one of the first things they keyed in on it was saturated fat, bad fat, the cholesterol-raising fat, very harmful to the brain. So anyhow, it does worry me that we say, oh, children should eat string cheese and all this stuff. We should take that and throw it in the trash. That is garbage, despite the fact that it has worked its way into our culture.
0: Okay. So...
3: I just want to say, going back
0: to your mention of the, what is it called, Moorism?
3: Yes, Moorishness. Moorishness. Not my words. Some sort of tongue-in-cheek researchers came up with it, but it does explain. I bet you can't eat one potato chip. You can't. You taste one and then the Moorishness kicks in.
0: Yes, which has been, and that probably is a whole nother interview, but it's actually been chemically engineered to be addictive. But going to that point, I get it with the sweet stuff. I get it with the sugar. What was shocking to me is the fact that it exists, the same addictive qualities exist in something that isn't sugar-related, per se, but has that Kassin
3: yeah, component. Uh, cheese is far worse than sugar. Sugar is a convenient scapegoat, and everyone likes to blame sugar for problems, and everyone can agree sugar's terrible. Compare sugar to cheese. Sugar has four calories in a gram. Dairy fat has nine. That's true for any cow fat. Sugar doesn't have any opiates in it at all. It doesn't have any hormones in it. If you eat cheese, cheese came out of a cow who was pregnant nine months out of every 12 because the farmers impregnate them every year, not personally, but they do this to keep them producing milk. A pregnant cow makes hormones that get into the milk and they're more concentrated in the cheese. It's not a lot, but I mean, for men listening to this, how much estrogen do you want to be swallowing? Well, that's what you're getting with every grilled cheese sandwich. For women listening to this, do you want extra estrogens that came from a cow in your body? Now that you know they're there, the answer is going to be no, but nobody was aware of that. So don't get me wrong. Sugar is not health food. Soda is not health food. Even if it's called Dr. Pepper, it's not health food, but cheese has got it beat in every single way. We work with hospitals a lot. They're trying to get rid of the sodas. Good idea. But if you're still serving bacon and sausage and cheese sandwiches and things like that, you're inviting your patients to come back for the next five days.
0: You went a step further in your research into milk and dairy and cheese, and it involved doing a Freedom of Information Act for any journalist out there, that's the FOIA, that allows you to get federal documents after a certain period of time. What did those documents show you, Dr. Barnard, about the extra special relationship that exists between? the dairy industry, and the federal government,
3: the FDA. There's lots of connections. They're they're really quite frightening. We discovered that Wendy's was producing the Wendy's Cheddar Lover's Bacon Cheeseburger as a U.S. government project. Wait a minute. You can imagine a fast food chain releasing a burger, but you wouldn't think the government would ask them to do it? (laughs) And I could show you the contract that the U.S. government signed with Wendy's to release the Cheddar Lover's Bacon Cheeseburger. When was this? Just oh, out of the, curiosity, oh, this was just a couple of decades ago now. But since that time, they worked with Taco Bell, so that as you're going through the drive-through, they'd say, "Welcome to Taco Bell," and then a suggestion: "Would you like to try a quesadilla today? Cheese, cheese was the right. thing. They worked with McDonald's, they worked with Burger King, they worked with all of them. They worked with Pizza Hut to put an entire pound of cheese on one serving of pizza, called the Ultimate Pizza. And why did they do it? Because in Wisconsin and in Florida and in California, there are farmers raising cattle and milk the cattle. They have a bunch of milk. And the more demand there is for it, the more money they get. They lobby Congress heavily, Congress institutes laws to favor them. And so the government, by law, must promote American agricultural products, especially cheese. And then when it got, got ugly, in the year 2000, we discovered that the federal policymakers deciding that Americans should eat. I'm talking about the people developing the dietary guidelines for Americans. Through the Freedom of Information Act, we got all of their resumes their CVs. We found that six of the 11 decision makers had been paid by industry, especially the dairy industry, some the egg industry, some the meat industry. So I found the lawsuit in federal district court here. And I got to say the government and all their attorneys, we had one, but it helps if you were right. And the judge instantly ruled we were right. You cannot run a country that way. Since then, it's gotten better, but industry is still heavily involved in promoting what people know about food.
0: I yeah. will add one other thing, and that is that for the last eleven years, I've actually had I've had different therapists, but I have been in therapy, which has helped me tremendously to untangle a lot of the we would say in Yiddish, the mishigas of my life. <laughs> <laughs> and and I would say that it has been really healing for me to do that. And I hope young people, if they feel for whatever reason, that they need somebody to talk to other than a friend, somebody who's a trained therapist, a trained eating psychologist, a coach like you, that they will reach out and find that help, because it's so hard to do it on your own.
4: I agree. And and the beauty of our stories, and especially for the Java junkies who are, you know, it's so you know young and have a great future ahead of them is that our stories are always changing. You don't ever have to be stuck. And just because something happened to you, it doesn't mean you can't evolve and, you know, write something new. You, you're never stuck. That's the beauty of our lives and our stories. Like it just keeps evolving. Amen, so, sister. Um, yeah. Okay. So you were asking about, I want to, make a point, And I hope this comes out the right way. It's, we can, I don't want, of course you want to love yourself as you are, but there's nothing wrong. And like, I feel terrible when my clothes are too tight. And I don't want to feel that way. And it doesn't matter what size you are. It's how you feel inside your body. And I think you use that as motivation to change or to do something different or to say, okay, you know, maybe I've been slacking off and I know I could do better. I can eat more greens. I can exercise more. And the difference, though, between what we were doing, you and I, is like you don't hate yourself and force yourself or punish yourself into it. You come from a more like loving place and you say, all right, I got to change. I've been, you know, I've been snacking too much. I've been doing too much of the late night, you know, midnight dinners or whatever, you know, and or drinking too much beer. And I know I don't feel better. So I'm going to change not to punish myself, but because I want to feel good in my own skin. Can you feel
0: the difference between that? Yes, completely. And I think that is such a great point to make that it needs to come out of loving the person that you are. And the truth is, we all have more stresses at different times, and we react different ways. But hopefully, what we can do is come at the self help all from that loving place.
4: Exactly. We we all fall off track. I I like to just say life happens. You know, it does the vacation, you know, like you said, the stresses and to answer your next question about finding the food. So you could. I think experts and books are amazing for ideas, but at the end of the day, there is no one superfood that is gonna cure everything or one food that is good for everybody. We are all unique. And so you are your own expert. And I think it's great to try new things, to you know use the latest protein powder if you wanna add that to your smoothie or you know try whatever the latest superfood is. But at the end of the day, you have to be connected enough to your body to know, oh, this made me, yeah, I liked it. I got energy, or I didn't feel those same cravings. But nobody can tell you how it's going to feel except for you. And that's where being awake at the plate, being alert, being mindful, it's a buzzword. And it's really true that when you are connected and in, in your body, then you will know when you feel good. My boys are around the same age of your listeners. And you know, they grew up Eating a lot of vegetables. And of course there was a lot of you know, a lot of plant based foods there was a lot of eye rolling and a lot of oh moms and why can't we this and why can't we that? But now their bodies have gotten so used to all that whole real food that when they don't have it or they're you know, they were not cooking for themselves in the dorms or whatever, they'll they'll come home and call me, you know, on the way, like please have lots of vegetables. I'm craving them. So I think when you start to eat the foods that feel good and you you see the results. Like you mentioned that the muffin top dissipated, you know, when you see the results because you're eating what feels right for your body, then you will naturally just want to be in that state of our body, you know, homeostasis, our bodies just want to feel good, but we have to be connected enough to
0: know what that means. So Elise, for Java junkies who are still in college right now, how Mm -hmm. can they... Kind of position themselves for success when it comes to the food that they're eating. What do you recommend that they eat? And how can they kind of structure their day in a way that they are getting the kind of energy that they need to do all of the things that college students do?
4: That's a really good question. And having just been through it and having um, several college age clients, I have lots to say. So the first thing is that one of the, this is inherent with a college schedule, they're like every day is different. You know, they sleep in a different hour, their classes at different times each day. And I highly recommend getting on a schedule with meals. I think that our bodies can only go a certain amount of hours without you know you you start to get low blood sugar if you don't eat it, you know if you're if you have class at noon and then you go all the way through and you're not eating dinner until 7 well that's 7 hours right so you would want to plan out a snack in between so that you can keep your blood sugar balanced your which also affects that brain fog that you were talking about can come from low blood sugar you know you just want to stay energized and focused while you're in classes and doing all your work throughout the day. So that comes from a routine is really good, making sure that you have breakfast, lunch and dinner pretty much at the same time, like within reason, but on schedule and that when you are going more than four or five hours in between meals that you have a planned snack to keep that blood sugar steady. And when I'm talking about plant snack, this is not hard. Anybody can do it. You can grab an apple. It's apple season right now and a handful of almonds. Almonds can be kept right in your dorm room or your apartment and doesn't require like, you know, weekly grocery shopping. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, it does. And, you know, I know your your blog is called Kale and Chocolate. What is it about those two foods that you felt were important that you place them together.
4: Okay, good question. I always like when people ask me So of course I love kale and chocolate, but beyond the actual foods, it represents balance to me. I when I shared my food story with you all, you know, there wasn't a lot of joy and I'm not saying kale is but it was just all kale, right? It was just a preoccupation with all things healthy and not in a fun way when you start thinking about food as numbers and you know and it's and it's not anything it's just nutrients, right? It, there's no pleasure there. And then chocolate represents, you know, the pleasure and the fun. And I I think well of course it's dark chocolate, but I think when you have both kale and chocolate in your life, on your plate and in you know, and beyond the food part where you're having fun, but you're also be, you know, working, then you have more of a balanced approach to life. And so that's what kale and chocolate really represents to me. It's about, you know, making sure that you're taking care of yourself on the health side, but you're not forgetting to have fun along the way. Mm -hmm.
0: What is healthy for Java junkies to be eating at this stage of their life? I mean, it isn't about only eating kale. It isn't about depriving themselves of the occasional treat. How can they right. be living their lives in such a way that they're fueling their bodies for energy?
4: Okay, so I, I'm going to make the assumption that most of you Java junkies are probably not able to cook all the time. And is that do you think that's
0: accurate? So why don't we do both? For those Java junkies who are on the college meal plan, for those who may be living in an apartment, or for those who've already graduated and are living on their own? Well, I have some
4: a couple of things to say that applies to anyone, whether they're, they're home-cooked home meals or they're eating out. I think one of the easiest ways to make sure that you're getting a variety of nutrients is to really think about eating the rainbow. As simple as it sounds, it makes a major difference in a lot of, in a lot of ways. One, it's just, it beats counting calories, you know, to see that you have all the colors represented. It naturally forces out the less healthier white foods. So, you know, if you're filling, for example, let me give you Someone has a bowl of oatmeal. Now you can just have that beige oatmeal, right? And nothing wrong with the oatmeal. It's a quote healthy food. But then you add the blueberries and maybe some raspberries into it, you know, and you're, you know, you chop up some, like some apples or whatever. You're just getting more nutrients, right? You're putting fresh, whole, real food onto your plate and without having to think too hard about it. So if someone is in college, and let's say they go to the salad bar, like Caesar salad, right, you know, doesn't have a whole lot in it, but they start adding the tomatoes and the peppers and, you know, some of the other colorful options that are on the salad bar, you suddenly have this really nutrient dense, healthy plate that will keep you happy and full. And then there's less room. Right. For some of the choices that might not be quite as nourishing. So eating the rainbow is huge and it's simple and easy to do. And you can do it whether you're cooking or you're eating out. What else? I think that making sure each time you eat that you balance your macronutrients. So that means that you get healthy carbohydrates, um, some kind of healthy fat, and I can explain that more if you want, and protein, whether that's plant-based or animal protein, just whatever works for you. But when you do that, when you put the, the different nutrients on your plate, that's how you balance your blood sugar and how you reduce cravings and how you make your meals last longer because you're not gonna have that spike when you eat just carbohydrates. You, you know, you might get a surge like all this energy, but then you're gonna crash and start craving more carbohydrates more. But when you add the protein and the healthy fat, then your meal can you can have your meal go for longer and you won't have that you'll have a steady rise in blood sugar and sort of a quick up and down.